Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, Acts 19, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Acts, a series entitled The Work Continues. We're going to be looking at Acts 19, beginning in a moment in verse 21, Acts 19, beginning at verse 21. As you turn there, I'll share with you some information. I, there was an article in the newspaper this past week. Perhaps some of you saw it. The title of the article was this, Election 2020, terrified to lose and afraid to hope. Let me read that again. Election 2020, terrified to lose and afraid to hope. The article referenced several mental health surveys done by various reputable medical organizations on the impact the election is having on American psychology. Some of the findings were a little interesting. For example, here's one of the findings. It noted this, and I quote, Nearly 70% of U.S. adults say the presidential election is a significant source of stress. Here's another quote. People believe that the outcome of this election is going to have a serious effect on their lives. And I've seen uh, different news media um, Uh, talking about how this is the most consequential election in history or the most consequential election of a generation or of a lifetime. Of course, they have to sell their product and and make money from advertising, so they've got to hype it up. But but nevertheless, there are many of us who are convinced that the election is a, a serious business, and of course it is. Here's another conclusion that a conclusion that came out of this article that I thought was interesting. And I quote again. Whichever side loses will still continue to feel like their insides are being churned because they don't believe in what the party in power believes in or what the president in power believes in. This last statement is reflected in some of the conversations I've had with many Christians. They are worried about the the future of America particularly the moral future of America. And they are concerned that it is at risk in this election and is therefore for many of us a source of stress. As Christians, we should care about and participate in this in every election. We should try to apply biblical principles of wisdom and righteousness and integrity, self-sacrifice, and, and, and all, more, all the more we can find in the scriptures to our selection of each candidate and every issue, every oval we should fill in, should, we should strive to fill in in a way that would be pleasing to God. Christians should want the influence to want to, sorry, Christians should want to influence the outcomes of elections. But we cannot, we must not fall into this trap of believing and worrying like these respondents to the survey believe and worry. The outcome of the election is not going to determine the cultural future of this nation. The influence of the election pales in comparison to the real power at work in the culture wars of America. I'll remind you of what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus the very church that we're about to read about here in Acts 19. To this church, Paul wrote the following. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And by the way, that includes the other political party. 
Whatever yours is, the other is merely flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul wrote that to the church in Ephesus, the church that's going to be at the center of the events of Acts 19. Let's stop stressing over who wins this election. For the culture war being waged in America will not be determined by the government in power. Imagine for a moment the worst possible outcome to this election, whatever that is in your view. Imagine the worst possible outcome to this election. Will that outcome put in place a government so openly hostile to Christianity that it'll begin to imprison believers and church members? Doesn't really seem likely, does it? Would the worst possible outcome of this election lead to government-sanctioned pagan temples at the heart of most major cities? Probably not. Brothers and sisters, regardless of the outcome of this election, the hostility faced by the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago vastly exceeds anything we have ever experienced or ever likely to experience in our lifetimes. Yet we're going to read about how the church in Ephesus, despite, despite the hostility stacked against it, the church in Ephesus had phenomenal impact on that culture for Christ and his glory. The church in Ephesus turned that city's culture on its head, despite all the forces of the Better Business Bureau, Bureau and the AFL-CIO coming together. Business and labor, you're going to see in Ephesus, come together to oppose the church. And yet the church prevails. Let's read Acts 19, 21 through 41. I remind us often here at Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means many things, but on this day it means this. If you want to know where the power over this world lies, you must know the word of God. Join me now in reading God's inerrant and powerful word. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that Luke likes this sort of understatement. What he means is this is a big deal. There was a major upheaval in the city of Ephesus. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the, work, uh, with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the uh, theater, dragging with them uh, Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, uh, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray and ask his guidance in understanding it. Lord, we come into your presence today. We bring with us the the worries and the concerns over the future of our country. We bring with us our, our longings for the direction that things would take. We bring with us this morning uh, anxiety and, and frustration over some of what has happened in our country. And Lord, we make the mistake too often of thinking that these things are in the power of the government to be fixed, that the, what is wrong with us can be repaired by just having the right people in office. And yet, Lord, we are reminded that you hold the only office that counts. You hold the only place of real power, that whatever disruption there might be to our lives in this moment is at your will and is for our sanctification and ultimately for our good. And so, Lord, as we turn our mind to this text this morning, we ask that we would be renewed in our understanding of the power, the real power at work in the gospel. The real power to change the culture and to change lives rests with you, not with this election, not with the powers of this earth. But in spite of those powers, even when those powers are stacked against your word, its power will prevail. Let us be encouraged this morning as we see this. And let us understand how to to take this lesson and to live it out and apply it in our time, in our place, where you have ordained that we should be your light. We pray this in the the name of the light of the world. Amen. 
I want us to take a look, first of all, at some of the aspects of the culture against which the Ephesian church was wrestling, and think a little bit about how that plays out in our world today. Take a little bit of a look at what culture really ought to be like. If it were right and true and godly, what would culture look like? And then talk a little bit about how to get from point A to point B how to get from the place of where the culture is to what it ought to be as we see it set forth here in Acts chapter 19. First of all, if you look there at verse uh, uh, 25, Acts 19, 25, we see this interesting statement. Uh, um, Demetrius is uh, speaking. He's gathered the business leaders and the artisans, the craftsmen who build these things. So he's got both uh, management and labor all together in the same room agreeing on something. That's rare. He's got them all together there agreeing on something. He says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So the first thing we see about this culture is that the wealth of this culture, the economy of that culture, was built upon idolatry. We're told that what they're doing is they're, they're building these little silver shrines of Artemis. So, so the temple in Ephesus, the temple to the goddess Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, together with the lighthouse in Alexandria and the hanging gardens of Babylon and some of the other things. The temple in Ephesus was one of those seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a destination to be seen. It was an amazing structure and it was one that, that people would flock to. And just like any other uh, 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 tourist destination, you want to take away an artifact. Some years ago for our 25th anniversary, Becky and I were blessed to be able to spend a little time in Paris. And you can bet we came home with little mini Eiffel Towers. You can't go to Paris and not get yourself a little mini Eiffel Tower. The people who went to Ephesus walked away with, they wanted something to prove, to show the world that they had seen one of these great wonders. And the silversmiths were making these little temples, little miniature temples that looked like the temple to Artemis. But there's a big difference between the Eiffel Tower and a temple to a pagan goddess. For they were taking home these little artifacts and worshiping them praying to them, putting them on the mantle, and then looking to them when they needed something from Artemis, when they needed fertility of their crops or their flocks, they would pray to Artemis for that fertility. For that was one of the, the fields over which she was goddess. There, and it was a great deal of wealth, was pouring in to the city of Ephesus upon the sale of these pagan trinkets, these idols. It was an economy built on falsehood, an economy built on idolatry. But when you've got the economy behind you, you've got a lot of power. We are reminded every election cycle, there is always some candidate who sooner or later talks about the fact that it all boils down to this, the economy. If you can convince people that they will be financially better off with you, you can win your election. The economy is powerful. And the economy built on pagan idolatry was stacked against the church in Ephesus. You know, there are different ways to build economies. 
Economy is not an inherently bad thing. In fact, we were mandated, we were created, we were told to go work, to go build an economy. We got to remind ourselves, work was ordained by God. Work was given to us before the fall. Economy is not a consequence of sin. It's not a consequence of the fall. Wealth is not a consequence of sin. But there is a right way and a wrong way to build an economy and to build wealth. When we have an economy of manufacturing, taking what was once a bunch of trees and turning it into a house, making it something better than what it was before. That's a legitimate, godly, biblical economy. Economy of innovation. Ideas coming up with a better way to do things. That's an economy that is ruling over and having dominion over the creation. How can we do it better? But an economy based on just moving wealth around, economy based on gambling, on mere service industries, those are economies based on what I want for pleasure. And they will fail because they are ultimately idolatrous. At the center of them is me and my pleasure and what I want and my entertainment and my likes and my dislikes. And it's driven by meism. And it is not a biblical economy. That's what they were facing then. An anti-biblical, anti-God economy. And that's what the church had to stand up against. And certainly we can relate to that in our day and age. We look at verse 35 in the same chapter, verse 35. We, we uh, hear the, it's the, uh, the, the, the what, what do they call him? The town clerk. Town clerk, that's the name they give him there. Uh, uh, he stands up and says this, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So we see here that, that there was fame, there was notoriety, built upon mythology. If the economy was built on, on, on idolatry, their fame and their notoriety was built on mythology. Something that isn't true. It was based in falsehood, in made-up stories from the past. Now, the idea of the stone falling in the sky, nobody, okay, most historians go probably at some point, a meteorite, boom, came down, um, boom, hit the earth. Meteor then hits the earth. They found it, they went, oh, this is from the gods, and they built a temple around it. The meteor really did hit, but it wasn't sent there by Artemis. It wasn't an artifact from a goddess. That's made up. That's mythology. But their fame, their renown, their standing in, in the world, their, their honor, their place of, of, of status was built on this mythology. Now, there's not anything wrong with an inherent a false story, if it's accepted and, and, and set forth as false. It's okay to read fiction. It's okay to be entertained by something that is not true so long as you know it's not true. It's when those not true things begin to creep in and affect how we think and begin to influence uh, who we are and how we think about the world that we have a problem. Their mythology had moved from mere entertainment and become the truth upon which they were built. 
We must be careful. It's okay to be entertained. It's okay to go to, you know, the happiest place on earth and have, you know, everything be not real and, and just go be entertained so long as you remember that it's entertainment and that it isn't real. But what is happening to a great extent is the degree to which entertainment is permeating our minds so frequently and so thoroughly, we have begun to expect reality to be like the false world. And there's this mythology that's building up on how things ought to be. One of the places I see it most markedly is in social media. I've, I've talked about this before. We get this idea that everybody's life is better than mine. My job's going horribly. My family's a train wreck. I burned the dinner last night. Everything went wrong. And I get on Facebook and I get on Twitter. Everybody else is great because they only post the good things. They don't post all the negativity. It's a mythology. But we've begun to base our lives on that mythology. And we've begun to build fame around how wonderful they have it. How perfect their life is. Based on this mythology. Their economy was based on um, idolatry. Their, their thinking about themselves was based on mythology. And then we see this power in a mob mentality in verses 33 and 34. Uh, Alexander, so, the, so there's this commotion. And remember, at this point in, 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 in history, we're still wrestling with the fact that the broader society doesn't make a distinction between Jews and Christians. The vast majority of Christians were Jewish ethnically, and they still participated in the synagogues to a large degree, so society sees the Jews and the Christians as being the same thing. And in the midst of this chaos, this rioting, the Jews want to, want to distance themselves from the Christians. They don't want to be pulled down with this hubbub. That's not us. So the Jews put forth this man named Alexander, who is going to get up and speak for them. Alexander is going to say, whoa, 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 don't blame us. We're not, hey, we, we've had a synagogue here in Ephesus for, for decades and decades and decades, and there was never any problem, never any trouble. This isn't us. That clown Paul, he's the one doing all of this. And by the way, we kicked him out of our synagogue. He's meeting over in the, uh, the school of Tyrannus. We saw that a couple weeks ago. He's not even part of us anymore. But when the, when the Jews put forth Alexander, the mob responds, and we see that in verses 33 and 34. Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, in other words, in their mind, he's part of the problem. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They just shouted him down. There was no place to listen. There was no dialogue. There was no willingness to, to step back and hear what somebody else might have to say. There was no interaction with ideas that disagree with your own. Wow. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Is our culture wrestling with that at all? That we simply will not listen to somebody's view if it disagrees with ours. And we are increasingly a society driven by this mob mentality. 
The Ephesian church was up against a culture whose wealth was built on idolatry. The Ephesian church was up against a culture whose fame and notoriety and self, sense of self-worth and, and self of, sense of self-glory was built on mythology. And the Ephesian church was up against a culture that was totally unwilling to listen to any other viewpoint other than its own. Just shout them down. Just talk over the top of them. And don't actually listen. The Ephesian church was up against a culture not that radically different from our own. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that changed. There in verse 26, what is the argument that's being made there? Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. So here we go. Here's something a little different. We've seen this many times now. Paul doesn't just shout over the top of his opponents. He doesn't just get the crowd yelling, you know, uh, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Lord, and just shout down the other view. No, he persuades. We've seen repeatedly how he goes into the synagogue and reasons with them. There is a dialogue. There is a back and forth. And Paul has continued that. Paul, verse, continuing in verse 26, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This really shouldn't be all that stunning. Paul is saying, hey, the culture ought to be directed in the, in the it ought to be headed in the direction of truth. He says to his fellow uh, 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 society members, to the others around him in Ephesus, he said, let's just think about something for just a moment. Can we stop and just think for just a moment? If you carved it, if you made it, is it really a supreme being? Is it really over you? Is it really something that has power in your life? Is that really a God? And by the work of the Holy Spirit through him, people were kind of going, uh, duh. That's a good point. Gods made with hands are not gods. And Paul just simply points out the truth. He just shares a simple truth. You know, when Jesus was praying for his disciples... When Jesus was preparing to leave and to leave the, 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 the church in the hands of his followers here on the earth, not without his involvement, don't get me wrong there, as he was praying for them in John 17, 17, part of his prayer to his Father in heaven is this, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. The word sanctify there means to set apart. To, to put them in their own little box, their own little category, to create them, to make them a sanctuary. Sanctify them. And in what category were we to be set apart? Where did, where did Jesus want the Father to set apart his followers? With regard to this issue of the truth. Let them be set apart from the rest of the world with truth. And that's what we see Paul doing in Ephesus, proclaiming the truth. And he finds just a simple little thing 
to talk about the truth. By the way, if you make the God, you're superior to it, and it's not a God at all. Oh, truth. And Paul is set apart in the truth and uses it to win converts. You know, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we struggle to to be set apart in this category of the truth is because we're not worried sufficiently about truth. We're more worried about sides. So instead of just speaking the truth, we're a little worried about which side is talking about that. And it's to the point that I'm increasingly convinced that one side or the other in our nation's political debates is going to stop referring to the sky as blue because the other side does. Well, I don't want to, be, I don't want to say the sky is blue because I heard a liberal say the sky was blue and I don't want to call the liberals, so uh, I'm not going to call the sky blue anymore. We're so worried about which side is saying it that we're not stopping to go, is it true? And just because the other side said it doesn't make it automatically false. And just because your side said it doesn't make it automatically true. Stop worrying about which side it comes from and worry about whether or not it is true. We must be set apart with regard to the truth And Jesus said, I am the truth. If you want to come to the Father, you have to know the truth. You have to know me. And so how is God revealed? How is he made known? How can we know the truth? Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4 say, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. There is knowledge about God in what he has created. In the heavens and here on earth. And the systematic, careful, rigorous, informed study of creation does reveal truth. There's a reason the scientific revolution occurred in Christian Europe. Because it was in Christian Europe that people went, hey, we can actually understand creation. An orderly God made it, and therefore it works in an orderly, predictable manner, and we can study it. We talked in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago about the astronomer uh, uh, Kepler, who said the study of science is the, is the effort to think God's thoughts after him. We must care about the truth revealed in creation, but we must not stop there. God revealed himself in the Bible, and we must know that. John Calvin talks about how without the word of God, we're like a person who can't see clearly. We're going to look at creation and get it all wrong and all fuzzy. And we're going to put on the spectacles of the word of God and it clarifies our vision so that we can see it more clearly. Peter writes this for, uh, for uh, second, sorry, sorry, second Peter 1.21. 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's revelation of himself. If you want to know the truth, you have to know this book. If we're going to be sanctified in the truth, if we're going to be set apart in the truth, we must know, not only only should we study the creation and do so carefully and rigorously, but we must know this book. You know, I quoted part of Jesus' prayer in John 17, but I didn't quote the next line. Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. And the next thing he says is, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The culture that should be is a culture rooted in truth. The culture will be the the right culture, the culture it was created to be, when it is saturated with truth. When truth, whether it comes through the study of God's created order or out of a study of his revealed word, when that truth permeates our culture, our culture will be changed and be what it is supposed to be. So how do we get there? How do we win the culture war? How do we move from the place where we are today to where we would like it to be so that it does reflect the creator who ordained it. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that it's really kind of summed up in the Great Commission. We, and and you'll see that reflected here in a moment in Acts 19. But our New Testament reading this morning, that little passage from the end of Matthew, was a section known as the Great Commission. It was the charge Jesus gave to his followers as to how they were to go about changing the world. You've got the Great Commission there in your bulletin. If you turn back to the New Testament reading, you'll see it. Let me break it down. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not to the winner of Tuesday's election. Not to the party in power. Not to the business leaders of this world. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus Christ. How can we believe that and worry about an election? Doesn't mean we aren't concerned. We can, be, we can care about the outcome of the election. We can work for the election, but we should not be losing sleep over the election. It doesn't matter which way it plays out. Jesus Christ will still be Lord of all. All authority will still be his. It's not as if one party uh, can take that power away from Jesus and another one grants it to him. He has all authority. For there is no presidential candidate who died in your place. There is no presidential candidate who obeyed God Perfectly in every way at every turn throughout his entire life. But Jesus did. And therefore, he has all authority. You see, the power to change Ephesus did not reside with the government. The government was in favor of the pagan temple at the center of Ephesus. The government was locking up. How many times have we seen Paul dragged into courts and dragged to jail? The government was routinely working against Christianity. 
And yet Ephesus was changed. Because the power rests with Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 19.17. Acts 19.17. We're backing up into a text from a couple of weeks ago. And we see this. And this, and the, 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 the power of the gospel to change lives, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. You want to know why there was a cultural riot in Ephesus? Why the, the business leaders were getting scared to death that their that their their, their pagan, uh, idolatry-based uh, economy was about to collapse because lives were being changed. And why were lives being changed? Because the power of the gospel was witnessed. And what was going on? People were extolling Jesus. What does it mean to extol? It just means to praise ex- extensively, to praise lavishly, to go on and on, to gush about. Perhaps the closest we come to extol on a regular basis is a new grandma, right? Who gushes, goes on and on and on about that new grandbaby. That's a good thing. Grandmas, keep it up. We should do that about our Jesus. We should extol him. We should gush about him. We should be talking about it. It should just ooze out of who we are. So amazed at what he's done for us. So astonished. If grandma can be that excited about a baby who sits there and does nothing, When it's being good, it's doing nothing. And surely we can get excited about a Jesus who didn't do nothing, but he did everything. He created us. He sustains us. When we sinned against him, he came down and became one of us. When we couldn't obey, he did so on our behalf. When we could not take on the wrath of God, he did And when we had no power to conquer death, he rose again. If we can't gush over that, if we can't extol the name of Jesus, I don't think we understand what he's done and who he is. Then in verse 18, verse 18 begins this way. And many of those who were now believers, many of those who were now believers, there were converts People were coming to know the Lord. There were converts because Jesus was being extolled. The Great Commission says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of, uh, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's amazing to me how often we leave that part out of the Great Commission. We think the Great Commission is merely about getting people to raise their hand at a rally, come forward, walk down an aisle, check a box, say a prayer. But part of the Great Commission is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It is necessary. It is good. It is keeping with Christ's commandment to teach believers how to obey. Now, don't make a mistake to teach believers Don't go to the world and try to teach them to obey Jesus. They don't acknowledge him as Lord. He has no authority in their lives. Why on earth would they obey him? 
The world is going to say to you, he ain't bossing me. Right? When you were on the playground in school and somebody told you to do something, what would you say? He ain't bossing me. You ain't my boss. You can't tell me what to do. And that's what they feel about Jesus. So I'm not saying that we take God's law and we go apply it to the world. First, they've got to be disciples. But rather, we need to learn it for ourselves. We need to be steeped in it. We need to study it. We need to know it. We need to obey it, even the parts we don't like. We need to live in accord with what was commanded. And by the way, we see that in Acts 19, verse 18. Backing up to, from two weeks ago. Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They're turning to obedience. Having come to Jesus, they're now saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey him. I want to live in accord with him. You see, what was happening in Ephesus was the Great Commission was at work. Paul and his fellow believers were extolling Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. When that happened, lives were changed. And as lives were changed, the culture was changed. To the point, it made such a dent in the local economy, the sale of pagan trinkets dropped off so noticeably that Demetrius and the others had to go, what is happening? They probably did some market research, tried to bump their advertising. Let's just start by increasing our advertising. If we can get, you know... Uh, 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 even more flashy, more eye-catching billboards out there. We can, we can get the sale of those temples, silver temples, back up. And that didn't work. They said, okay, maybe we do a two-for-one sale for a while here. We'll cut the price. We'll sell more silver temples. That didn't work. And eventually they started to go and ask, and people said, well, I, I don't buy them anymore because that's not a god. It has no power in my life. Jesus is Lord. I don't need that silly little silver temple. And the culture began to take notice of the fact that the church was obeying, following Jesus. Because he was being extolled and because they were following him. And Jesus closes the Great Commission and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That authority did not cease with the church in Ephesus. The presence of Christ among his people did not stop when the book of Acts was concluded. Our sermon sermon series is entitled, The Work Continues, because it does. If we will extol the name of Jesus, if we will divulge our sins and turn away from them, we can have this kind of impact on the culture. We can change. Talbot County and the eastern shore, 
all of Maryland, the country, and eventually the world. If we will live out the Great Commission. Don't fret over this election. Don't lose sleep. Don't trust in the politicians. Hope for good ones. Vote for good ones. Pursue godly policies. Fill in the ovals in a way that you think will please him. But let your hope rest in the authority of Jesus Christ over everything on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Let your, the, fu- the hope for the future rest in the Great Commission, the power of the gospel to change lives. Let that change you and me so that eventually the culture has to take notice. And Jesus Christ will be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, let us see the power that is still available to us today, that is still in your hands, being wielded for your glory through us if we will just do these things. If we will just trust that the power to change the world rests with Jesus. If we will accept that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. If we will extol him, gush over all that he has done and all that he is to us. And if we will humbly come and divulge our sins and seek your help in changing the direction of our lives, we can have the kind of impact the church in Ephesus had. We long for that, not for our glory, not so that we will go down in history as a a culture-changing church, but rather so that more will know you, more will come to you. You will be pleased with the, the, the lives we live here on this earth. You will be glorified by the testimony we have for you. We long for these things so that your work would go forward in grace and mercy and power to us and to all we know. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.